Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cheese and pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket and I'm Joel Norris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like about some warm stuff that they like. A book or a TV show or a film or a record they go back to again and again for comfort. This time I'm talking to the writer, broadcaster and podcaster Danny Robbins. Danny started out as a comedy writer and then moved, as comedy writers sometimes do, into the field of the weird, uh, making the podcast series Uncanny, The Witch Farm and The Battersea Poltergeist. He also wrote the successful stage play 222, A Ghost Story, and is about to take his uncanny empire to TV and book form. And Danny has chosen for his comfort blanket the definitive uncanny horror film, Nicholas Rogues, Don't Look Now. Thank you. Well, I haven't, I haven't come. I've come around to your house. <laughs> we're, we're in your shed of spooks. You are in the shed, which I often talk about in the podcasts. And I think people are often, I don't know if they're surprised, pleased or disappointed by the shed, but the shed is not the kind of little shed that perhaps people have imagined. It's slightly <laughs> bigger and, and it's painted a kind of chic, scandy white inside. It's quite jolly uh, and positive. <laughs> thanks only, to my Swedish wife. The only thing that's spooky about the shed, which you should be noticing, is that there's a tube train running underneath yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A really loud tube train, which, which you'll creates, hear at points in this interview. Going, <laughs> <laughs> and it creates ultrasound, so I'm going to keep seeing ghosts if science it's is to be believed. entirely possible, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's going to put us on, on edge. But you've chosen something, I, I'm so delighted you've chosen this, because it's a great thing to choose, and it's very, very appropriate for what you now do for a living, which is talk about ideas of ghosts. So tell people what you've chosen. I've chosen Don't Look Now, the film by Nicholas Rogue, from originally from a book by Daphne du Maurier. It was Christine. Christine is dead, Laura. You're sad. You're so sad and there's no need to be. I've seen her. And I think it's a strange choice actually because this is called comfort blanket yeah and i'm not sure that this film brings any comfort at all but it's held me 
in its magnetic grip for uh, for my entire adult life, actually. And I, I also realise that the point of your podcast is that people return to this yeah. many times over their lives. And, and I have returned to it many times. And, and I, in fact, I've returned to it daily, but I haven't watched it many times. I've seen your little girl and she was laughing. Yes, my sister's psychic. I was going to say exactly the same thing. I, When you named this, I thought, this is one of my favourite films. I'm a big horror film fan. Particularly, I'm a big ghost film fan. Way more than a horror film fan. I don't know if, I, if I've got the same thing as you, which is, I don't want to watch people cut up in a basement, but I'll watch something about the uncanny. I'm happy to watch psychological thrillers. And I always rated this as one of my favourites. And it's from the classic year, 73. So you get The Wicker Man, Exorcist, Don't Look Now, the holy trinity of sort of uncanny, classy, BFI-like-it horror. And I watched it thinking, I probably have watched it four times in my life but I think I think about it once a week mm. I'm going to light a candle for her how much are candles? 50 we don't have any 50s maybe I'll light 6 I think it haunts you it's a film you don't need to go back to for it to be in your brain yeah well I, I watched it again before chatting to you and I realised it was the first time I'd watched it for a very very long time indeed yeah. and, and it was actually it's the first time I've watched it since I had children ah. and it affected me in a very different way because the, the story is about loss it's about a couple who lose their child and the, the haunting effect that has on them and and their desire I guess to be in contact with that lost child and, and I think watching it having your own children I, I viewed it in a very very different way and I found the, the beginning of the film the moment of loss incredibly hard to watch and I, I, my wife earlier in the evening had said to me you know oh you've got to watch a film you know shall, shall I watch it with you and I was, like, on the sofa. I was like you won't want to watch this she hates scary stuff I was like you won't want to watch this and, and about five minutes in I was like oh my god I'm glad she didn't watch this because yeah. I think it's so affecting that the, seeing the, the, the really visceral raw grief of parents losing a child <laughs> and then you know the kind of long-term haunting impact of that so so yeah I, I felt very different to when i first watched it which was as a, as a student at bristol university watching it with um an eye on writing an essay about it yeah. and writing about the the art of filmmaking here i was kind of you know admiring the art and yet hit, hit by this kind of deep internal punch of it, its emotional power Maybe that's one of the things that's key to it, is it's something that is, that is studied as a piece of film art. And Nick Rogue is definitely an arty filmmaker, very admired, very studied by film students. So a lot of people come to this on a film course, or if you're studying the history of the ghost story or something. But the thing about this, unlike a lot of art house films, is it is visceral. Mm. It's about pain and grief and very human emotions. What it's famous for, I think Google it and you'll find that it's as famous for its sex scene mm. as it is for its ghosts. Yeah. It's about humans and human urges and desires and the things that go through a couple's mind or an individual's mind or a parent's mind. It's not a chilly film. And so unlike watching, I don't know, 2001, which is quite chilly and cerebral and beautiful, this is earthy, dirty, wet, soaked with blood. It's incredibly affecting, and I'd forgotten that. I think one thing that is interesting of a lot of the great films from that period of time in the 70s is that they take their time. Yeah. I watched Alien again recently as well, and, and oh. the, the, the kind of the long years of that, the, the, 
you know, the moments where nothing happens are incredibly important in terms of building atmosphere and tension. And it's true here as well. You know, it just it takes its time. So you mentioned the sex scene. Yeah. The sex scene is long. And, yeah, yeah. and that, that might sound sort of a bit prurient, but but something about that length kind of establishes the realness of it, I think. And, and I think that's true of the entire film that you, you really believe in this couple and their relationship uh, because of the time spent yeah. developing it and building it and, and the, the horror works because of the time spent building to that. And I think I've often spoken about being interested in the, the mundane, the, yeah. the, the terror of the mundane. And I think that's there in my play 222, A Ghost Story, which is in this kind of very real world setting yeah. of this house and, and the things that can haunt you in your house, the kind of non- supernatural things like a, a baby monitor or the sound of foxes outside that can haunt you. And it's in all the podcasts that I've made, you know, th th these are stories about very real, ordinary people in very real, ordinary places. And that, that's what Don't Look Now feels like, I think, that even though it's got this rather spectacular setting of Venice, yeah, it's Venice in the winter where it's kind of quite gritty and a bit depressing. No, I'm just asking if my wife has come back here. No, Signore, we are closed. We are closed. It's closing down. It's closing down. And, and you know, cinematography of the film is just, it's obsessed with the mundane, the little objects. Yes. The kind of, it lingers over just the ordinary people around them, the, the hotel staff or just someone on a boat who happens to pass them. There's, there's lots and lots of real faces in this film. Yes. I mean, I don't know how he cast it, but it feels like a lot of the people in the film don't look like actors. Yes, it's like he's caught someone opening a window. What it's about, which I think is fascinating for this as a filmed ghost story, is it's about looking. Don't look now. And he's a cinematographer. He's a cinematographer on Fahrenheit 451. He's, he's a cameraman. And so he's observing. And when you are in grief or haunted, you're looking. You're looking for faces. You're looking for clues. You're looking for recognisable things. When someone loses someone, they often say, I saw them. I saw, I glimpsed them in a mirror and someone who looked like them or uh, a coincidence lined up that made me think of them. And as a human being, you're a pattern detecting creature. And you must know this from your podcast. Very often what people are seeing is they're making faces out of nothing. They're, make, they're seeing things in the dark. That's what a, a skeptic would say about what ghosts are. We're, we're so good at seeing patterns. Sometimes we invent them when they're not there. And Don't Look Now is about a man who is denying how haunted he is by his grief. And he starts seeing the thing he's lost everywhere. And the camera is doing the same thing. It is looking everywhere. It lingers too long on things in case something appears there. It looks down alleyways in case someone appears there. And nine times out of ten, no one does. And that is the key to your sustained unease and dread in this, is that when probably you can count them on the fingers of two hands, you see something in this film. It's an absolute shock and it drags you in. But that's what you're looking for when you are feeling you have lost something. I've seen your little girl sitting between you and your husband and, and she was laughing. Yeah, and ghosts are so much about the search for hope and in this yeah. film the search for hope is is very tangibly manifested by this red coat that the little girl was wearing a red plastic mac when she died. She's wearing a, a shiny little mac. He sees a figure in a in a red coat who looks like her, and and that red coat for me has taken on incredible significance because that 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 splash of red 
in this kind of landscape of horror. It's such a powerful thing, isn't it? It's kind of yeah. blood-like and sort of, you know, red is this kind of colour of danger for us and yet it's this colour that draws you in like a, and also a moth to a flame. Also, it's a, an autumnal film. It's it's it, both settings, the time setting at the beginning when, when he loses his daughter and the time, we assume, by the weather roughly a year later when some of the grief has been buried, uh, enough time for that to happen. It's a really quick cut and suddenly it's a, it's a year later the same season. It means that the colours are milky and muted. It's not a bright Venice in bright sunshine. It's not bright Hertfordshire in bright sunshine. So when you throw a single colour in like red and it's used very well, you notice it, you register it. I was talking to weirdly, people may know I've done this, this obsession with yellow cars in comedy. Mm. Once you start spotting which comedy (laughs) characters drive a yellow car, they all do. And I asked Adam Tandy, who made Detectorists, where there's a nice yellow car, why a yellow car? And he went, well, no one drives them. So when you do a big shot of a town, there won't be another yellow car. Because I think it's 0.1% of cars are yellow. And also, he said, against green or brown or blue, the, the colours that are ambiently around us all, urban settings or country settings, a yellow car will show, will show up and your eye will follow it. And he said, I want you and the director wants you to follow that yellow car and know where the character's going. So if we gave them a blue car or a brown car, you wouldn't see it. And it reminded me of the red coat. Yeah, really uh, interesting. It's, it's the comedy version yeah, yeah. of the red coat. And red horror. coats and yellow cars. That's, yeah. a, that's a good and, album title. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll notice in, in one another one of my favourite films about grief and loss and dread, uh, Dark Water, Hideo Nakata's Dark Water. He puts, as an almost reference, the girl in a yellow Mac, which works just mm-hmm. as well against the sort of really, really washed out Japanese yeah. urban setting. You will follow a little girl in a bright coat. This film proves it. <laughs> yeah, that's no, really interesting. And, and I've, I've found myself over my life gravitating towards red. And I sometimes wondered if this film is responsible. But I've, I've often found myself wearing all red for like stage shows or photographs. And, and you know, yes. anyone who's listened to my podcast Uncanny will know that the, the image artwork for the show is me in a red Mac. And that yeah. is, is very directly a, an homage, a reference to Don't Look Now. I actually had lunch with the man who wrote this film. Don't look now. I, I met the screenwriter <laughs> of this film. He's called Alan Scott, and he's you know a, a quite inspirational man. He's in his eighties now, and he wrote this film. He wrote Castaway, uh, another Nicholas Rogue film, and he also co-created The Queen's Gambit. So he's got. Uh, he, I was thrilled looking credentials. him up. You yeah, mentioned yeah, him. Yeah. I looked him up and thought he's obviously he's got the world's best biography. He used to be a Scotch whiskey magnet. Or something. Yeah, he, he's, well, he he's is. I think he's the heir to the Macallan whiskey yeah. distillery, I think. Yeah. And he ended up being the screenwriter. He wrote this with Chris Bryant, who seems yeah. to be more of like a TV writer. Mm. So basically there's that sort of t- uh, 70s TV serial feel to this, which is nice and grounded. Mm. And then he's this guy who wrote loads of Nick Rogue films. And mm. what a great screenplay. And we have to talk about this as a piece of writing, because you're a writer. Yeah, yeah. We both read this week the book, the, the, the short story, because I found it on my shelf. I hadn't looked at it for years. And we both sat and read it. And what stunned me was the changes that Chris Bryant and Alan Scott have made to Daphne du Maurier's excellent story to make it sing. And the number one change they made is the red coat. Yes. Absolutely blew my mind. The red coat on a little girl isn't in the story. Well, no, it is. But it belongs to the wife. Yes, yeah, that's the interesting thing, I think. It belongs to the wife. And so that they, they flipped it and they gave it greater significance. I think what the screenplay does brilliantly is it raises the stakes of everything. In, yes. in the short story there, just on holiday there, in the film, they give Donald Sutherland's character, John, a, a reason to be there. He's a restorer of churches. And he, he suddenly gets pushed into kind of greater proximity to... Well, I mean, he, he, there's more connection with Venice, I guess, and also greater yeah. proximity to the various dangers. You know, There's a reason for him to stay. Day as well, which yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. If you ever write ghost stories, the hard thing is why don't you just move? Mm, why don't you just mm. leave? And the great thing about something like the Enfield Poltergeist is that they can't afford to move. I love 
as I know you do with Battersea and things, mm. I love a, a, a haunting of a non-stately home. Because mm-hmm. then you go, well, that's why they don't move, because poor people can't move. I love trapping people yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah. And the lovely thing is giving him a job there and something to do means that he wouldn't just run away. He can't run back to the side of his son when his son's ill. He's, he's trapped there by duty. Oh, God. The deeper we get, the more Byzantine it gets. I'm restoring a fake. Incredible you can't change your course. All right, out of the bread. The options are restore the fake or let it sink into the sea. What'd you say? Well, I said Daddy's still hard at work on the windows of St. Nicholas, our beautiful 16th century church. Lovely 70s thing about men and jobs. Yeah. Like in The the Shining, it's about masculinity and can you Mm -hmm. provide for your family. We're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here and you hear me typing, whether you don't hear me typing, whether the fuck you hear me doing in here when i'm in here that means that i am working that means don't come in he needs to stay at his work but part of you goes are you staying at your work and obsessing with your work to avoid facing your grief and your duties as a husband and a father yeah and he's literally being sucked into the landscape you've got this kind of backdrop of venice sinking the kind of yeah. the decay of venice and he's there trying to restore it and you know, and, and yet kind of at threat from the landscape as he's restoring this church you know like he has an accident on the on the building site, things happen. You know, there's a huge theme running through the film, isn't there? Of falling, of of, of yeah. breakages and falls. You know, Julie Christie falls at one point in a kind of very spectacular, dramatic yes. way. He falls as well. Glass is broken. There's, I think, horror is so much about what doesn't happen. Yes, and and the most successful horror films, things don't happen a lot more than they do happen. Yeah. The films where things do happen a lot, you kind of get a bit tired of it. You get a bit satiated after a while. But but this this is about where is the risk going to come from? Where's the jeopardy going to come from? And it feels present at all times. And yet, <laughs> there's, there's and yet a sign outside the church. And, down. It just says Venice in peril yeah. outside the church. And after a while, you realise you've subliminally picked up the words Venice in peril from this sign that's the charity who are helping him restore the church. And it just sits there. There's this constant sense of crumbling. It's not Venice doesn't look like what it looks like in, let's say, Moonraker as a fantastic mm. holiday destination full of, where man has conquered the water. And, of course, his, his daughter... So the idea of like bodies in water and things falling into the water, things crumbling into the water and decay. Che è successo? Abbiamo trovato un corpo. I hope it's not another murder. It's so beautifully chosen. And it's in the book, yeah. but I think it's in the film twice as much. Yes, I think so. And I think many of the choices in the film are, are poetic ones, aren't they? The, the, the daughter in the book died of meningitis. Here yeah. they have her drowning and then there's that connection with Venice. And I, I just think, you know, that the, the positioning of the red coat for the daughter and making that so much more prominent. I think that it's a piece of art, this film. I mean, any, any, yeah. you know, the book is a piece of art as well, obviously. But this is, this is something that really kind of transcends cinema almost. And you kind of feel like, you know, sometimes you're watching it, it has this kind of almost trance-like quality that draws you in. And yeah. there's, there's a degree of, like, you know, this could almost be an art installation at the moment. Yes. It's, <laughs> it, it's, so, it's so kind of beautifully crafted. I, I wonder if, you, you know, we talk about how how were the pyramids made as if we've yeah. lost some sort of source of ancient <laughs> knowledge you feel like has filmmaking lost something here i mean we don't make films like this anymore these these 70s films that were utterly gripping and yet almost nothing happened at moments you know a frame of nothingness yes. could just draw you in and hold you i was trying to work out how it worked because it borrows a lot and i think quite happily from Hitchcock. He obviously works for Truffaut, so their influence is going to come through. But where Hitchcock has got tension, 
that you know as an audience there's a bomb about to go off. Someone said, you're going to get in trouble, you've seen the murderer, you've glimpsed it. And Hitchcock will always allow you to see where the threats come from. He's just removed that. You don't know where the threat's going to come from. You have a sense, instead of tension, of unease. Mm. And that, I was talking to Will McLean, who writes ghost stories, and he said, what people get wrong with horror is they do horror. Mm. And what you have to do is unease. Yes, It's the waiting. And it's exactly what you said. It's, it's the waiting for it, not that it's happening. It happening, you've seen in crime. You've seen someone be shot. You've seen someone be cut up. Most of the horrible things that can happen, that can horrify you, happen in other genres, in mm. gangster movies. Mm. But what happens in horror and ghost stories particularly, is the waiting, is the unease. I think so. I, I sometimes say that I think the most frightening thing is uncertainty, and yes. th- th- it's more frightening than ghosts, it's more frightening than death. And I think just not knowing what the monster is and yeah. um, not knowing where it will come from and that terrible state of tension I think is, is so powerful. And you're absolutely right. It's, it's a film that just makes you feel so damn uneasy because you're just not sure what's wrong. It's like trying to sort of diagnose some sort of disease, you know, yes. there's a kind of malaise. You're, you're kind of it's like, a sick film, isn't yeah, it? Some, something is deeply <laughs> wrong here. And, and, and you, you can feel that written on the uh, countenance of Donald Sutherland throughout the film, that, that that kind of sense of something is wrong without quite knowing what it is. You must think I'm ill then. Yeah. It's a film about a man not facing something. It's a film about, if you're talking about the sickness and disease, it is a mental health film. He is mentally ill. And his conviction is that his wife is mentally ill. And that's, if you want to say what the twist is, we can, I don't know how far we are into spoilers here, but we could say what the twist was. But the twist isn't that it's not his daughter in the coat. The twist is he's the one who's ill. And the twist is he's the one who's psychic. And the twist is you're looking at the wrong people. Of course, he has the gift. Well, that's why the child was trying to talk to him. He has the gift. And it's got a lovely 70s sense of he's a man and he fixes things and he's the dad and he's completely unbreakable. And he's the sensible, rational one. And it's a Mulder and Scully set up. It's an uncanny set up. There's a sceptic and a believer. It's got that lovely thing of going. And you go, well, obviously, the person who's mad will be the person who believes that the daughter is still alive and that the psychics are right. And it turns out that he's the psychic. He can see her. And how that impacts on the story is incredibly complicated. But he's the one who is mentally under strain because he's holding it in. And it's almost like the diagnosis is that he's the ill one. And he's obsessed that she's the one who he's looking after. She's delicate. She's the one who he's protecting. Maybe I should start taking my pills again. On the desk, right there. There. Here. Here. And he's the one who needs protecting because he hasn't faced this. He won't talk about it. So there is a rot, like Venice. He is crumbling inside. And you watch him. Donald Sutherland is the perfect actor for this. This tall, dominant man. And he is so good at crumbling and looking distressed. And what he's done wrong is not go and ask for help, not go and talk to someone about this. You could get about a couple of weeks or so off, couldn't you? Yeah. Could you? Yes. And, and there you have the kind of the heart of why the film's successful, because it speaks to this universal truth about how we deal with grief and yeah. how some of us deal with grief 
worse than others, how it, it leaves many more kind of ragged, jagged edges in our lives. And I, I think, you know, I, I, the horror that scares me is the, the horror that it feels most real. And yes. um, I was thinking recently again of a, another film, The Babadook. I don't yeah. know if you've seen that one, but um, you know, it, it brilliantly occupies a place where you are unsure for the whole film again. You know, you're not yeah. sure if this is going on in the head of the mother of this young child and is her, you know, essentially going mad that she's no longer in control or, or if there is a, a real frightening, terrifying thing that has leapt out of the child's book and is, is haunting them. Sometimes... I just want to smash your head against a brick wall until your fucking brains pop out. You're not my mother. What did you say? I said you're not my mother! I am your mother! Again, like, every horror film that's affected me the most deals in that sort of uncertainty. And and Don't Look Now could certainly be seen as a, a template or a model for this yes. kind of film. It It does that par excellence, I guess. And, and any of us who are interested in making, I guess, what you could call emotionally driven horror or horror, yeah. horror that comes from a kind of real place and, and from actual human emotions, I, I think would look at this film and, and see a kind of masterclass here. There's something that is essentially interesting about ghosts, I think. And it's a little bit like what I think about magic. My mum used to watch TV magic shows and she would resolutely pretend to not enjoy them because my dad and my brothers and I liked them. And she'd watch it and she'd look away and say, yeah, he's just a wizard. And her explanation was that it was actual magic because it was easier than trying to work out how it was done because she didn't enjoy them. And I know that not only you saw your cards, but I know that the people who thought of a card at home will have seen their card. And that's magic. And I think people who really believe in ghosts are looking for the easiest possible solution. Was it a monster? Yeah, it was a monster. What's really fascinating is, what if it isn't? Why did we see it? What does it say? And my favourite ghost stories, the same ones, are where they're, in inverted commas, about something. The least interesting thing is if it's a goblin or a monster or a demon. There are other entities who are malevolent and have a more insidious agenda. And then there is this. A demon. I like it best when... It might be that someone needed to see something, that someone is expressing something really, really human. Say his name and it will all be over. The man you've been meeting, that you'll never stop meeting. You're wrong! You're insane! You're insane! His name, Mario! You are insane! You're insane! I find it least interesting when the monster is a monster. Dealing with demons is not my area. I really like when the monster might be a monster, but also might be that someone's made it up. It's what's great about uh, Shelley Jackson's The Haunting. What fools they are. The house tricks them so easily. Just by telling me to go away, they can't make me leave. They can't shut me out. Not if Hill House means me to stay. That great moment where the screenwriters and Robert Wise, who directed the film of Shelley Jackson's The Haunting, phoned her and said, oh my God, what if there's no ghost? And she went, I'd never thought of that. Brilliant idea. And it's placed, certainly in the film, placed entirely in one woman's head that she wants the house to want her because she's so lonely and frightened. I've waited such a long time. I've earned my happiness. I love it when it might be a human energy that's been manifested mythically. You're human. 
probably like to think it was your fault. My sister says I wanted Mother to die. If you want to know, you just heard clips from the definitively spine-chilling Insidious, Paranormal Activity, The Innocence and The Haunting, and maybe scariest of all, The Paul Daniels Magic Show. Yeah, well, when it comes from within, within us, I think it's very powerful. And I think the, the idea that we are at fault, that we've somehow caused this thing, is in, in, incredibly frightening within the context of horror. Yeah. You know, that idea that you chose to watch the videotape in the ring and you brought about your own <laughs> yes. death. You know, human beings, you know, we're very susceptible to that idea that we have transgressed. You know, we're, we're programmed. We blew through, the whistle and we yeah. summoned the ghost. Centuries of religious belief, right, dating back to kind of caveman times, no doubt, has kind of programmed us to feel guilty about transgressions. And so when it when it's come from within us and things that we have done wrong, and yeah. in this film you have that idea of, you know, is he somehow responsible for his child's death? You know, is he, yeah. is, you know, is he culpable? Could he have got there faster? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The brilliant thing, which I don't think I'd noticed the first time I watched it because I was so punched in the gut by the, the visceral death at the beginning, was that he just looks up from his desk and knows she's going mm-hmm. to die. So at the beginning, you know the twist is that he can sense things. Mm. You know something strange? John just suddenly got up and rushed down to the pond. Almost as if he knew something was going to happen. Almost a premonition. And we should talk about that because one of the things that the film does brilliantly is it deals with time. Mm. And But he, for a minute, it's like he's flipped in time and he knows this is the moment he has to run outside and try and save his daughter. Almost as if he's travelled back in time to save her. What's the matter? Nothing. His wife says, where are you going? Well, there's no reason. He didn't hear anything. She didn't make a noise. And he rushes out. At that moment, you realise that his unease has led him to run out. And maybe he's guilty to go, well, if I'd run out a second earlier, or as she points out, if you hadn't said the kids could play near the pond, maybe he feels that guilt and he's not admitting it. And he has manifested that guilt in the form of seeing his daughter everywhere, which is exactly the thing his wife says that the psychics can see and that his wife is hoping to see almost like the the Mm. sitcom Ghosts. She's hoping to be able to see her. He can see her. And he's wondering, why can I see her? And it's because that's how grief works. You see that person everywhere. And guilt works. You were the one who said, let the children play where they want to. You let it go near that pond. Thanks for the memories, Laura. You You also have this moment of he's looking at this slide of a church, the church that he's restoring in Venice, and and he spills a drink on it. and, And there's this red hooded figure sitting in the church and, and the water mingles with the red of the slide and it kind of you know drips like blood across the slide and so right from the beginning nicholas rogers planted this visual manifestation of the threat to come and, and yeah and also know, the loop of time this basically how is there a red hooded figure mm. in there and the answer is well of course someone in a red coat can sit in a church on a slide are they trapped in a loop of time is he destined? Is he, is he heading towards a point which is fixed that he can't escape his fate? And that spilling of the blood across the slide is a shape you see again at the end, and it's mirrored as if he's trapped in a loop, he can't get away from it. The whole film is about not just the supernatural, not the idea of a ghost, which I think is what's fantastic about it as one of the great ghost films, is there might not be a ghost in it. I think it's what it seems. There certainly isn't a Babadook. There certainly isn't a malevolent spirit who's been summoned who wants to cause trouble. It is entirely self-contained within his grief. He sees something that is impossible, his daughter again, as if he's seeing through time, as if time has fractured and allowed her through into his present life and talk to anyone who's grieving. And that's what's painful is that the person is still there. They're still in their heart. And maybe that's why we see ghosts at all is that, of course, 
people don't go to another place beyond because they live in our minds and our hearts. And it's incredibly sophisticated, the original story and the film, exploration of what does a ghost mean? And it might just be memory. And what is memory but time travel? Christine. I saw Christine. It's interesting that the, the grief is brought out so much more powerfully in the film. In the book, you don't really get a sense of him processing or dwelling on his grief. And I, I think it's, it's written through the prism of kind of 1960s kind of stiff upper lip well, Britishness. I, well, I was stunned by this because I looked up and thinking the, the book had been around for ages. And it's a 1969-70 story. So it's a couple of years earlier. I thought they'd adapted an old story mm. and brought it up to date. They founded it. She's a slightly old-fashioned writer, so she's writing it through mm. that prism. But she's writing it at the same time. And Nicholas Rogan, Chris Bryant, and Alan Scott have found in it a very much more modern reading of the psychology of it and the ideas of grief. And you're right. In the book, it's very repressed. In the book, the obsession is with the twist and the time loop, which is a great short story. Of course, you'd be obsessed by that. It's a brilliant idea. But he's obsessed with seeing his wife seeing a premonition mm. it's very much a short story about premonitions mm. whereas the film is a hundred percent about suppressed grief mm. and it's the same story <laughs> yes no, no, totally totally yeah but you know really interesting you you were talking about the the time travel aspect of this you know that the playing with time and that is particularly present in the sex scene you yes. know, the, the, the scene that everybody <laughs> talks about It's, you know, they, they intercut between the sex and getting dressed afterwards and juxtaposing these moments of kind of, you know, nudity and dressing in a, in a kind of very powerful way. And it, I, it, it's, I don't know, what, what, why has this film been boiled down to this scene? I sometimes wonder. I mean, it's talked about as the greatest sex scene I think it's in really, cinema history, it's, isn't it? Because it's so honest. Do you know what it looks like? It looks like people having sex <laughs> rather than, than people being filmed having sex, which is why I think the rumour started that they really had sex. And watch it again. Of course they're not. They're acting. But it is edited to be human and authentic and real. And it's there. I didn't realise why it had been put in there. It was put in there because they're bickering, they're arguing, because they've got two different points of view. And they're under stress. And Nicholas Rogue said we needed a scene to show they were very, very much in love and that their marriage wasn't in mm. trouble and that they were together and he cared for her because otherwise the rest of it doesn't work. You need to see mm -hmm. that they're fine. You've got toothpaste all over your mouth. Eat it off. It's present in the book. It's, it's like a couple of sentences in the book. It's amazing. It's a cut. It's a mm -hmm. sharp cut. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that Daphne de Morrow felt she needed to say they're fine as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's important. And it really makes me think about a note that I've given a lot on productions of my play, mm. 222, where I say the, the only way this play works is if you believe that these two characters love each other. Because yeah. you've got two characters who are loggerheads, Jenny... The woman believes there is a ghost in the house and Sam, the sceptic, doesn't. A very and, similar setup. And for you to care about their argument, for you to care yeah. about their relationship falling apart over this possibility there is a ghost in their house, you've got to believe in their love at the beginning. You know, at you've stake. got to have the stakes there. And it, it is so true. And I think, you know, the, the, the horror that does not work, that is not impactful, is where you don't care about the characters. Because who cares if so-and-so gets stabbed or slashed or yeah. eaten by a werewolf or whatever if if you're not emotionally invested in them that's the big difference i think with this with with the classiness of this film and the classiness of the best of these horrors is that the domestic and the mundane is given enormous weight and it is equally important because otherwise you have got your list of characters you can knock off one at a time in a slasher movie and you don't care about them or their archetypes or something oh there's the jock and there's the boffin and whatever. but for you to care about these people 
then allows the horror to land on them because then you identify with them and you realise that they are normal people. Mm. It's funny. And, and what could be more mundane than nudity? Like, you know, that, that yes. scene of Donald <laughs> Sutherland sitting around naked working on his architectural <laughs> plans on the church. You know, that, that's just... Well, the mate, the mate comes mundane. in and yeah, she goes, oh, yeah. and he just turns around and goes, no, it's fine, I'm just... That is a nice 70s joy of sex, frankness, about their bodies, <laughs> which I think is very, very of its time. Right. But the, the, the cuts of them getting dressed, and it is a film where the cutting is bold and brilliant. Mm. Time exists at once. And a lot of people have sort of said, oh, what does it mean? And you think, well, that's how your brain works. That's how memory works. If you're remembering this. And at the end, when he's at a moment of enormous uh, stress, he flicks back through all the things he's seen so you can piece the story together and, and understand how the twist works. But that thing, which normally happens as a flashback as someone's drowning at the end of something, happens all the way through the film as if he's drowning all the time. Mm. It's like a cinematic drowning flashback from beginning to end. As soon as the girl goes in the water, we are in a world of relentless flashbacks and flash forwards. Because I think that's how our brains actually process time. Certainly how grief processes time is it's smashed up so that things are out of order. And what is a ghost except an edit of someone from earlier being cut into the present? That's what the stone takes it. Who's there? Right there! I saw her face this time. She's so frightened. Dropping the uncanny and the supernatural into the mundane and putting people under stress when they're just, they're just trying to get on with their day is really frightening. And I think that the central horror of this film is the central horror of a lot of the best supernatural stories, whether it's M.R. James or Shelley Jackson, is the threat is that you've gone mad, that you'll be wrong, that you can't trust your senses. And that fear of madness is the core of a good, creepy story rather than a horrifying story. And the great thing in Don't Look Now is that the twist is, oh, it was horror. There's a sharp blade. Oh, it's almost like it's the last thing you're expecting because at no point is an unseen cloaked figure bumping people off one at a time, even though it's the definitive cloaked figure film. Mm -hmm. Hey, 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 Peter, Vengo, quick, 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 La Barca, quick. No, 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 La Barca. Espera me, espera me. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mm-hmm. 
my introduction to this film was studying it for my drama course at the university. And it's a film that you could study forever, really, isn't it? It's, it's so <laughs> full of things you'd want to try and make sense of and understand and, and learn from. And I, I think that, that's probably coloured the way I view it, I think. I probably do view it as a kind of some sort of artistic manifesto or some sort of blueprint for how you can do stuff. And what, watching it again yesterday, I was just thinking, God, I would, I would love to make a piece of art like this. I'd love to make a film yeah. or write a play like this that, that had this kind of degree of subtlety and intelligence to it, and yet the, the, the kind of huge impact of it as well. It's not a film that in any way is arty over-fulfilling. You know, it's a film that delivers on story, it delivers on scares, yeah. it delivers on so many counts, and yet it's just like, it's like watching a moving painting. It's inspirational, isn't it? It's something that you would watch and go, oh, is that possible? And I think maybe that a lot of people, when they talk about things that give them comfort, if you're an artist, it's to have something exceptional and go, someone managed to do that. I want that to be something to aim for, like a star in the sky to mm. navigate mm -hmm. towards, to go, Certainly if you're working within within this field, which can be trashy. And I think when people talk about the Wicker Man as the Citizen Kane of horror, that juxtaposition of Citizen Kane and horror is meant to make you go, well, there wouldn't be one of those. And that's, well, why wouldn't there be? If this is a thing that muses on grief and uh, people's response to grief, then that's Hamlet. <laughs> the highest form of art we've got starts with someone seeing a yeah. ghost and not being able to deal with their response to grief. Be thou spirit of health, or goblin damned. Bring with the airs from heaven or blasts from hell. Be thy intents wicked or charitable, thou comest in such a questionable shape. But I will speak to thee. The idea that you're dealing with the supernatural doesn't mean it has to be trashy or crappy, because the supernatural is woven into your existence as a human being, even if you don't believe in it. Whether you can or can't trust the input of your senses, which is what ghost stories are, that's something that everyone should worry about every day. What may this mean? That thou, dead course again in concrete steel, revisits thus the glimpses of the moon, making night hideous, and we, fools of nature, so horridly to shake our dispositions with thoughts beyond the reaches of our souls. Yeah, I mean, I, I had the experience recently of working on something within the Hollywood system where I was feeling a lot of pressure put on me whilst writing the script to make it very clear that the ghost existed and from oh. very early on to have the ghost present and this was really supernatural and it and it, everything about it kind of made me rebel and it just felt sort of counterintuitive against all the things that I try to put into my work which is that uncertainty that we were talking about you know the, yeah the fact that the ghost might not exist is much more frightening yeah. than knowing the ghost does you know, you know <laughs> once you know the ghost exists you're like well it's a ghost we can deal with this we'll cope yeah. with this you know it's, but, it's um, funny people want to do you go well hang on if you want to say there's a threat out there that could hurt us well there are tigers yeah as in, as in there's nothing scary that we are vulnerable to germs yeah as in, that's yeah. not a horror film I know. The, what's scary is that we might be it's it's the not knowing and yeah I think the not knowing you know this threat could be a volcano it could be a tiger it could be a uh, tsunami, yeah. it could be a werewolf, you know. Once you know it's one of those, you go, let's call the werewolf guy, let's get him yeah. to come, you know. But when, when it's, you know, <laughs> potentially a whole range of horrors unnamed and unknown, then that's that's horrible. It's ridiculous. I really want to meet you. No, I'm not going to get involved with two neurotic old women in a session of mumbo-jumbo. The funny thing is, when you say you're a horror fan, people think you like all of it. 
And I have a problem, which is I don't like lots of it. I don't like the violent stuff. I'm not. I'm quite like a monster movie, like Alien, like a, like a good, good scary film, like American Wolf and things. But the ones I really, really love are the ones where you don't know whether it's real or not. Mm. It was the old Osborne book mm-hmm. that I had as a kid with the, all the, the photos. The World of the Unknown, yeah. And it was called The World of the Unknown. If it was called The World of the Known, and it was about the biggest <laughs> sharks, I would have been slightly interested. But it was because we didn't know. And there's nothing more frightening to a rational, supposedly analytical, pattern-seeking creature like a human being than to be told, do you know what? Some things are beyond rational analysis. You might not be able to know. And the delight of saying, ah, jury's out on this one is what you're seeking. You're seeking the bliss of that fear, yeah. of the darkness, of staring into a, a room and not knowing what's in there. I know, and I feel there's a real nostalgia for that at the moment, actually, because I feel like we have known about <laughs> things for a, a long time now. We've had this kind of period of time where our arts had these very prescribed boundaries. You know, we've consumed Marvel and Harry Potter and Star Wars and all yeah. these kind of things which build a universe for us and tell us how to relate to it. And I think that now I see a lot of people coming back with that kind of thirst, that desire for the unknown, the kind of limitless, boundaryless world of paranormal mysteries and UFOs. To experience mysteries of the unknown, examine your first volume, Mystic Places, for 10 days free. Then decide if you want to dismiss it. To order your first book, Mystic Places, call 1-800-532-1100. I was a late adopter to horror. I... (laughs) came to it as a student, I think, really. I mean, I, I think I'd mildly dabbled as a teenager, but really I, I felt a kind of love for it as a student. And the first film that I really, really remember watching and really thinking, like, oh, I love horror, <laughs> is Scream. If they'd watch Palm Night, they'd save time. There's a formula to it, a very simple formula. Everybody's a suspect! I'm telling you, the dad's a red herring. It's Billy. And Scream is a film that kind of references yeah. many other films before it. It's a kind of very tongue-in-cheek, postmodern, referential film. And so in a way, I watched the kind of the, the, the sort of pastiche or the parody before I watched the actual thing. Watch out. Watch out, Jamie. You know he's around. You, you know. Oh, oh, there he is. I told you. I told you he's right around the corner. I watched Scream before watching Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th, the kind of films it drew on. But it's a key that unlocks things. You find that with kids. I love the fact that kids who've grown up on The Simpsons know Don't Look Now and The Shining and things because they've seen it pastiched. Must have dozed off. Red room, red room. One of my tutors at college said, if you want to read all the books on your course really fast, read all the parodies first because mm-hmm. it will give you the key mm-hmm. to unlock them when you finally read them, which is a great piece of advice. Parody and pastiche is a great Cliff's Notes mm-hmm. to what you're about to watch. Screams a great way in, or carry on screaming for that matter. Watch the parodies, <laughs> yeah. and then you'll see how the real thing works. No, it's very true. Yeah, people who don't like heavy metal understand heavy metal because of Spinal Tap. Yeah, so there's a lovely yeah, yeah. way in. Screams a great way in. I think that I was like you. I think I thought I liked the unknown, and I only got into horror when I was much older. Someone gave me a a friend who who is now dead. Bless him. A lovely guy uh, I work with gave me a videotape of all the BBC ghost stories. Said, I think you'll like this. And it was about ninth generation, so you couldn't see it. It was all rolling mm. in VHS. It had been copied about six times. It was like the tape from The Ring. Mm. And he was staring into it, and it was just all this fuzz. You couldn't tell whether the ghost was there or not. Oh! And after that, I remember thinking, that is the key to horror, was not only that these were great ghost stories, but I couldn't quite see them. And it was a sort of forbidden artifact that really helped. And the fact that I was having to lean in and look for the clues, and they were slow. Uh, and I went, oh, I love these. And I don't think I knew that horror was that before. And Don't Look Now is the perfect example of that slow 
elusive, clever, intelligent horror where the scare is hidden. Yeah, I mean, I sometimes say that I would consider that I make horror for people who think they don't like horror. <laughs> There's a lot of people come to my play who think they don't like scary stuff, but it's got this kind of recognisable world of the couple and the dinner party, yeah. and it kind of gives you an entry point and then scares you. And, you know, Battersea Poltergeist was this kind of period drama that ends up, you know, ends up being a horror. But I, I, I sometimes wonder if the audience for horror has narrowed, if horror was a more mainstream, broader field in the 70s, that some of those yeah. big movies like the, the Omen or Don't Look Now, Rosemary's Baby, whether they were watched by a, a broader spectrum of people. I don't well, great, know. Great directors know. always tackle one. I always like yeah. the fact that there, there is a Kubrick, there is a Robert Wise, there is, there is a Nicholas Rogue. Is it was a, a, a genre you could do or incorporate elements from. And horror is in. Thing. I mean, Dickens wrote great ghost stories. What's great about Don't Look Now is that it is a, a art film by one of the greatest of artistic directors in the field of the ghost yeah, story. and a very grown-up one as well. Like, you know, I think a lot of horror now is, is a real young person's medium. You know, it's blood and gore and jump scares and like a computer game, I, I guess, to some degree. And I, I think that, <laughs> you know, it, it's pitched in that way very much as well. Like, if you go on Netflix now, like, a lot of the horror is very what they call YA, kind of young, yeah, ad, yeah. young adult skewed. And, you know, as somebody writing horror, you're constantly told as well to kind of think in those directions, push it to this kind of young audience. And I actually... I think that the greater prize is is just everybody out there, you know, kind of not tailoring it to this yeah. kind of one sort of specific demographic, but making a piece that resonates with and scares and moves everybody, really. If you look <coughs> at what scares people, and you said this with coming back to Don't Look Now as a parent, that you noticed a level in it, obviously you enjoyed it when you weren't a parent, but now there's another level in it which affects adults and parents and the fear of losing a child, that it's got another layer in it. And when you look at that YA skewed horror, probably Scream is a very good example of it, or those sort of cabin in the woods, pick the kids off mm -hmm. one at a time things. What they're scared of is adulthood. They're not really scared of death. Everyone always says, oh, those teenage films are about the teenage fear of death, but they're always about punishing the kids who got slutty. Yeah. So the ones who've grown up get knocked off first. It's about, oh my God, if I have sex, will I, will I die? And you go, well, that's a fear that you get over pretty quickly. <laughs> Peter Pan with meat cleavers. Yeah, exactly. Um, you get to a point. Yeah. Whereas these other films, which are about things like certainty of belief, or this is a film about whether you suppress your emotions, whether you suppress your grief, how you deal with responsibilities of adulthood and things like that. Those are concerns of adults. Mm. And a horror film that has that stuff in it can be great. I recognize you from your mother. What? Sometimes I swear I can feel them in the room. You are a hypocrite! Hold thy tongue, daughter mine. You cannot bring the crops yield. You cannot hunt. Enough. Thou canst do nothing, they've got one! She can't live on her own anymore. She has to be watched. Everything all right, Grant? This entire house is just for us. Yeah. All of it. I think you two are going to be all right. As long as you can get along, fit in. We are not going back. That's the spirit. Four clips there from some recent horror films that deal with very adult or surprisingly deep themes. Hereditary, The Witch, Relic and His House, all of which are excellent and well worth checking out. Hopefully, few people who have watched this film will have lost a child. But yeah. everybody watching it will have been either a parent or a child at some point. Yeah. You know? and, yes. and, and I think films can speak to us from touching on universal truths. So, so we can feel 
if we are a parent, we can feel that sense of loss. You know, if, if we are a child, maybe we can somehow sort of plug into that severing of the parent-child relationship. It, it just needs to touch you in some emotional way. It doesn't need to be yeah. that you have literally lived through this thing yourself for it to have this incredible power. I mean, I guess that's the thing about horror. It transports you into a place where you can imagine being that person. Yes. Because of the brilliance of the filmmaking here, you can imagine that grief and it's a, yeah. a, a, and it affects you emotionally and then... You, as you plunge further into the kind of horror elements, you know, you can imagine yourself in this situation where it's slipping further and further out of your control. Well, the technique that's used for that, and again, we're talking about Nicholas Rogue as a great cinematographer and a great camera guy, is that horror is the genre that invented the first-person creeping shot and what you're doing in this film is you are looking for a clue. And he, as a cinematographer, said the clue will be mainly red. So look out for red in these shots. So the number of jump scares in the film that are done by just someone's red bubble hat being in the front of the shot or something red being on a, on a sofa in the background, it said, okay, as an animal, as a wild animal, danger is red. Look out for red in the shot. And so you are always through Donald Sutherland's big, expressive eyes. You are looking through them a lot. You are looking for hope for clues, for danger. And you are encouraged to identify with the character in horror by the fact that the lens of the camera is often looking into obscure dark spaces, looking for danger or clues or faces. Mm -hmm. Which is why when you finish watching a horror film, and I noticed this in myself and realised only after years why it was, why you leave the lights on to go up the stairs after you've been scared isn't because there's a monster in your house, is that you've spent the last two hours looking for faces. Mm. And if you turn the light off and don't give your brain enough data, you will see faces everywhere. It's paradoily. You will see plug mm. sockets and things. And I was saying to you on the way, and we were telling a story about this, saying that I was staying overnight one night in a posh hotel on my honeymoon. Thought, I'll spend money, four poster beds, everything, Tudor mansion, we're going to really spend... And obviously Tudor mansions are full of statues and faces. I didn't sleep a wink. It was like being in <laughs> Scooby-Doo. A psychologist told me recently that long narrow spaces scare us because there are very few escape points. You yes. Know? It's hard to get out of them. It's, and, it's, making, it's making you an animal, making you a threatened animal, yeah. peering into caves. Evolutionary psychology, back to that <laughs> sources of threat, you know, like, and those transitional spaces of doors and stairs. Hey. Come here. I think I found the way. No, we've been off of this bitch already. The other thing that's astonishing about Venice is the desire lines in Venice are terrible. You know the theory of desire lines in no. urban spaces? No. You'll know this because we met in a park recently that has a problem with desire lines. You can see where you want to go, and no one's put a path between where you want to go. Ah, and, okay, okay. and so what you'll notice on the grass in parks mm. they haven't put the path in is that people have worn... Mm -hmm. And what very often people do, urban planners, is they wait for that and then they put a path in there. Yeah, right, right. And if you go to a place that has been designed as bad urban space, if you go to, say, the Millennium Park in London, mm -hmm. or Docklands, recently built... You can't get to it. You can see the cinema and you can't get there because there's a they haven't put the bridge in and, and there's a canal in the way. Down here, if we take the second left and we have right in front of San Decorai. Oh yeah? Yeah. I think. Oh, nice dark little alley. And Venice, he's constantly looking to where he wants to go. And there's a canal in the way. And I was watching it thinking, Oh, I know this feeling that you want to go somewhere and you can't get there. And I thought, that's a dream. Mm. The geography of your house in a dream is that the doors have all moved around or that you're in a house that's a bit like a place that's a bit like your school, but it's upside down. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this was just around the corner from where we were. I know where we are. Now. You're reaching for something you can't get there. And Venice is the perfect location for not being able to get 
to yes, the street yes, you yes, want yes. to get to. Yes, constantly going over the wrong bridge. I mean, you know, going yeah. back to class, another classic horror piece, the uh, Nightmare on Arm Street, trying to get up those stairs that, uh, that end up being like Mark Mallet. <laughs> You're right. It's evolutionary psychology it is the thing we are most frightened of. The safest place is the nest, the familiar house where everything's within arm's reach. We're in your shed. I assume this feels quite safe most of the time. You can reach out and grab things, putting things beyond reach, making doors disappear, locking them. They're all the tropes of horror. And the weird thing about Venice is it is a great haunted house because a lot of the time you can't get to the turret you want to get to. It's locked because there's a canal in the way mm. or a boat or something. It's really hard to navigate. He's like he's in a dream. No, 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 La Barca. Spare me. Spare me. And, and therefore hard to escape when you get yourself in the wrong place as yes. well, which, you know, is, is how the film ends. But yeah, it, it's it's very true, definitely. But I, I scare myself even in the shed, you know, the, 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 the windows. You know, when I look out the window and I see my face reflected at me, you know, oh. with the backdrop of the night, it, it's amazing how easily we can scare ourselves even in familiar places. So then suddenly you put yourself in an unfamiliar place and your mind runs riot. You forget that about the face at the window. The face at the window trope from horror, which I, everyone uses. Probably my favourite one is is in The Innocence, the adaptation of Turn of the Screw, the black and white thing with uh, Peter Wingard in it. And Peter Wingard's face at the window is one of the classic frightening images from classic horror. It's because you're afraid. You're afraid you might be mad. You never fooled us. We always knew. <laughs> <laughs> And you see that all the time. That's seeded into your brain as a scary image. What if there was a scary face at the window? But every time it gets dark and you look at the window, there's a scary face in the window and it's yours. It's a reflection of your own face. You will see a face where there's not meant to be a face all the time. And, and of course, <laughs> without giving too much spoiler, you know, the most terrifying th thing in this film is a face yeah. where it's not the face that you expect at all. And, and I think that there's those moments in horror films where the thing or the person you expect to see is not. Yeah. You know, when when suddenly you realise that the person you think is going to be safe is not. You know Well the classic one is turning someone around on their dead. Yeah. You turn the, 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 the mother round and it's it's a skeleton. That's your classic thing is you think someone's okay and they've got a bullet in their mm, head. Mm. Um that's a standard technique. And one of the beautiful things about this film is how much it manages to weave a new form of horror from standard techniques. This isn't a film that uses CGI or special effects. There are great horror films where the key to it was a, a move on in technology like the Steadicam or latex makeup effects that mean you can stretch bodies in the howling or, or, or the thing or whatever. This uses the same techniques as 1920s cinema. It is just cut into cut. And he does it to tell you a story about what film is about, which is distorted time. The cuts, the revolutionary thing in this is, well, you can put a film in any order. He's using the really basic tools of cinema to make something incredible about how our minds process fear. What is it you fear? We also have to mention the casting here because as much as the, the cinematography is brilliant, his choice of yeah. the actors he uses, the, the, the actor who ultimately presents the threat looks terrifying. You know, he's, yeah. he's found somebody who is a frightening person to look at and First time uh, I'd noticed an echo with the gargoyle earlier on, which, right, which, right, which okay. when, when Donald yeah. was repairing the church, there's suddenly a really scary face in his in his face, and mm. he, he shivers, and you wonder the first time we have you, why are you shivering? And the answer, of course, is if time is as disjointed as it is, maybe he's had a vision 
of a horrible face leering at him mm. before. And he goes, oh, and it's almost like he's a premonition of what's going to happen at the end. Yeah. That's an Easter quick. Donald Sutherland, incredibly expressive face to read fear and horror in. And and Julie Christie, the beautiful thing about Julie Christie is her calmness. John, Laura. listen, I'm perfectly all right. In fact, I haven't felt as good as this in months and months. I feel really fine. Which she said she wanted to act like she was more in grief. And the weird thing, she's processed her grief and is addressing her grief by something which you must have come across in your investigations through the supernatural. Mm. She goes, I think my kid's still here. And he's going, she's not, face it, she's not. My daughter is dead, Laura. She does not come peeping with messages back from behind the fucking grave. Christine is dead. She is dead. Dead, 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 dead. But there's a serenity and her look of comfort that she draws from these psychics who are frightening him. Brilliant. Hillary Mason's face with the, mm -hmm. with the makeup to make her look blind is a terrifying effect. He finds her scary. She finds her reassuring. And her serenity in the face of her own grief is so beautifully played and it wouldn't work if they were both having the same reactions. I don't need pills. I'm not going crazy. I feel really great. The vision he sees of her, what's disturbing about it is that she seems so calm. She's almost smiling. Laura! With the knowledge that her family won't die. I'm fine. I've been playing with them all afternoon. Talk to the doctor. He says... John, Christine is still with us. Christine is dead, Laura. The, the psychic sisters are a real source of scares as, as well, actually. And again, they're kind of very ordinary looking women, but there's something about them. That, I mean, I, I felt some real shivers down my spine watching it again <laughs> yesterday before we talked. And uh, it, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's hard to put your finger on, isn't it, about just why all these things are so frightening. But it does ultimately boil down to that sense that there is something wrong. You know that the, the two ladies in the restaurant, well, they were watching us while we were eating. They kept staring us. They told me this because they could see sitting between us. They could see Christine sitting between us. This is two people who we don't even know. This, listen, listen now. The, the, there's, there's one who's blind. She's the one that can, can see. She's the one that has the second sight. And she, she's blind. She described to me Christine's red plastic Mac. Yeah, that's very, very classly done because in the book, there's two areas of unease about them, which I thought were really interesting and very late 1960s, early 1970s. One is that they might not be women, that they might mm. be, there's a joke that they might be men dressed mm -hmm. up, that there's sort of a fear of non-gender conformity. They might be hiding something. So they might be, as we often think watching the film, they might be murderers because there's a murder on the loose. And they're twins, which is classic Kubrick uncanny. And in the film, Nicholas Rogue went, no, they're just a couple of, of old ladies from Scotland. And oh, wh why is that scary? Because they're not meant to be here. And the way they see the world is different than theirs. So she's looking a different way. And the film's called Don't Look Now. It's all about looking. What if looking wasn't enough? What if you had to look harder, using your third eye or your soul or something? And again, we're talking about grief and a man repressing grief. He's not looking deeply enough. He could save himself. He wouldn't need these psychics. Mm. But I love Julie Christie's playing in this because it is so realistic. It's so authentic. And she has a certain calm about her, which is kind of maddening because she should be in grief yeah yeah and they're both these clearly beautiful movie stars and yet they feel very real there's something yeah. nicely unconventional about both of them i mean donald sutherland you know he's a very handsome charismatic man but there's something very unconventional about him he doesn't yeah. quite fit what you expect a movie star to be and and apparently the original desire by the producers was to cast Robert Wagner and Natalie Wood, who are a real-life right. couple. But then Nicholas Rogue pushed for Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland, and he really wanted them to do it. And I think, in, interestingly, I, I read also that he had to do quite a bit of work persuading Donald Sutherland to do it, because Donald Sutherland didn't 
like the portrayal of psychic clairvoyance in the film. Oh. He felt he felt it should be shown as more of a positive. Even if he doesn't know it, even if he's resisting it, it's a curse as well as a gift. Right, because um, you forget this is the era when people are hoping yeah. that ESP is going to be the answer to yeah, humanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly people in the, so artistic people. Have... In, really interesting. I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're coming out of a, a period here with, it's 1973. Three, okay. So, I mean, we're coming out of that period of the 60s where there was this incredible interest in the occult and the paranormal. You have the Rolling Stones with <laughs> satanic magicians and all that sort of thing. And there was definitely this intense interest. And, and I feel interest in the paranormal, interest in the occult, goes hand in hand with periods of uncertainty in society. You see this yeah. huge interest in the paranormal after wars, after the First World War, after the Second World War. I mean, after the American Civil War, you have the birth of the Ouija board. And the 60s was this period of intense unrest, the Vietnam War, and yeah. many movements trying to change society. And you see this increased interest in the paranormal. So I think that this film is very much coming out of that, I think, and this, this interest in the idea. This thing might have a real power, that there could be a power out there. And, and I think we view it differently now to back then i think people yes. would have had much more sympathy for the idea of clairvoyance and, and totally. psychic states than than now we do in our slightly more jaded cynical I times i think it looks now as a piece of fiction oh this is about a woman who believes in spiritualism you can't ever contact people can you we're often asked she's quite famous around elgin the core of this, that there isn't a ghost, there isn't a monster, there isn't a, a threat, there isn't a, a thing from beyond the grave that's coming back, there isn't a demon. It is about spiritualism. Weirdly, it's a very Victorian setup. They all want a lot of mumbo jumbo about ectoplasm and holding hands. You forget the classic ghost story came out of that burst of interest in spiritualism. And the question at the middle of this, which is what is in the middle of your podcast and your play, do we die? And I consider it an impertinence to call his creatures back from rest for our entertainment. It's a really basic human question. If we are frightened of death, what happens if it's not as simple as that? What if someone dies, clearly at the beginning of this film, and one person says, I would like to believe that she's not dead, in a very, very real and engageable way. I've been told you will be able to see her. We can talk to these women, and if I have these women as my friends, then Christine, the child, is not dead. It's all right. That's an impossible hope for humans. And spiritualism comes from a desire to say, can we negotiate this? Can we have a version of ourselves that is eternal, that doesn't die? And this is what this film depicts through editing. That's the question. And it's a great problem to pose in a relationship as well. Dramas require problems and conflict. And you know, in my play, the problem is that Jenny thinks there's a ghost in the house and Sam yeah. doesn't believe in ghosts. In, in this film, you have the huge, uh, seismic, awful thing in the relationship of losing a child, something which many, many relationships do not survive. Yeah. And then you have this idea of one person not being able to accept death and believing that the child is still alive yeah. and out there somewhere and the and Don Sutherland's character wanting to be able to grieve by accepting the death Jesus H. Christ John she's trying to get in touch with us maybe to forgive okay go on John you crazy women making out there go on what's interesting about the film watching it again what is pulling the couple apart because they put the sex scene in to say they're not being pulled apart, but they are being pulled apart. And they're constantly being pulled apart by their attitudes to death and their attitudes to grief. And her attitude is weirdly non-acceptance. I am grieving by saying she's still here. 
and his is total acceptance and he shouts at her yeah his, her I mean, his anger when he says something like you know she is fucking she's dead, dead she's Lauren. dead she's dead she's um, dead and he's dealing with it through rage and she's saying well what if there's an alternative to rage and pain what if there is and here we make a return to the theme of the podcast what if there is comfort what if someone would give us comfort and this is where we're talking about spiritualism the ouija board was a huge urge a need for people to find comfort in the face of death here drink this whiskey Oh, thank you. I don't really need it. Thank you. You may, child. You may. I mean, I, I have said this on a few occasions that I believe ghosts are a comfort blanket for us. And I, I think that can be interpreted from both believer and skeptic points of views, because if you believe that ghosts are real and you feel like you've had experience of ghosts, then that is an incredible comfort blanket. And if you're a skeptic, you can perceive it as a comfort blanket that we as a as a society have invented for ourselves, you know, to kind of yeah. block out that horrible terrifying idea that death is the end i got scared for you told you it was all right i think it's interesting i came into this podcast thinking that i'd brought you something that was quite uncomforting (laughs) but actually actually you're right there is this comfort at the heart of any ghost story that it offers this hope this optimism you're so sad and there's no need to be the film very much deals in that i mean you're left at the end of the film very much feeling that there is something to this and that you know that there has been something paranormal at work here even though the actual threat when it comes yeah. is a real world threat a human threat i hadn't noticed that that your final you know, message is yeah. the only way this film works is if he has got supernatural powers then the plot makes sense mm. it's a, it's a very clever <laughs> film from that point of view because because most supernatural thrillers require there to be something actually supernatural present and they they require that normally to be the thing that ultimately scares you or kills yeah. you and in this film the the, the biggest scare the, the horror comes from a human source but at the same time we feel the paranormal present one of them the blind one claimed to have seen christine her dead daughter she said christine was happy yeah the final answer is that there was the paranormal and if there was the paranormal then julie christie's calm and comfort might be right and his sin his mistake was to not listen to his mm-hmm. wife who had found a way of dealing with her grief through the way that humans have throughout time by believing in ghosts. My wife collapsed, and when she came round, she, she was totally changed. She was happy. She had come to terms with the death. She, she was her whole self again. The big take-home for all of this is always listen to warnings in horror movies. <laughs> Never, ever ignore the person who says, you must leave now. <laughs> Because they were right. It was a warning. It was Christine. She was trying to warn us. How can I... We must leave, John. So we've ended up with a lovely situation here with one of the most unsettling and uncanny and uneasy horror films. Turns out to not only be a comfort blanket, but I'm going to say a comfort coat. A big red comfort coat that you can pull around yourself to say, aren't human beings interesting, weird and brilliant? Yeah, I can't can't (laughs) tell you the significance of that coat for me. That that coat has been kind of life-changing. I bought myself a red Mac a few years back and and no doubt Don't Look Now playing heavily in my mind as I bought it. But it was just a red Mac that I I liked to wear when it rained. You know, it was a trendy Danish Mac from that company Rains. You know, every (laughs) bloody hipster in Walthamstow where I lived was going around wearing a version of them. But I had the red one. And then I decided to wear it for the publicity shots for my uncanny podcast. And it it kind of got immortalised in that way and became the look. And it just seemed to work. It was this splash of of horror in this photograph, yeah. this splash of blood like red. And, and clearly there was that kind of nod to 
Don't look now, nod to Red Riding Hood maybe as well. The, the it's picture a fairy tale shows me thing, kind of yeah. lost in the woods. And then I found myself, as I told you earlier, I found myself sitting down having lunch in some posh restaurant with Alan Scott, who wrote this movie, being uh, forced to drink Chablis at lunchtime, because that's what you do when you're in your eighties <laughs> and you're a very successful yes, person, you know, from that era when <laughs> from that era when you've always had a bottle of wine at lunchtime, you know. So so there I am drinking Chablis and eating some posh food with Alan Scott, t- talking about this project that we might possibly work on together which was very exciting and and i said to him alan i want to show you something and i pulled out my phone and i showed him this picture of me on the uncanny podcast i was like that alan is all because of you Mm. i wore that red coat for that publicity shot because i was inspired by the film you wrote it this is an homage to you and um and here i am sitting to you now you know and yeah he, he didn't seem that bothered by it (laughs) (laughs) but that's it because it's it's a thing that's significant to you and you can view your life through your relationship that thing but the, the idea that something as you said you were anxious about bringing this on saying is this a comfort in fact most people have said i'm doing done it now what as a comfort I, went, I think it is and i think it's a comfort because it comes with you as a representation of an intelligent and open approach to the idea of why do we see ghosts why do we need to believe in ghosts and it does it through a bunch of very clever artistic decisions including saying this is about time this is about memory. It's about grief. It's about wishing the impossible were true, that someone, when they died, didn't simply die, that it was more complicated and subtler than that. And of course, the truth of it is, as anyone who's lost someone knows, that person doesn't leave you. They are in your heart. They are in your mind. You will see them. And it's an incredibly basic retelling of a ghost story. But to say, we don't need a monster. We don't need the supernatural at all, really, apart from the fact that our brains don't work in linear time and that we look for shapes and patterns everywhere. And what is the red coat apart from a pattern that we are asked to follow through this film? And as you just said, through your life, you will find comfort from knowing that's yeah, possible. Yeah, and about our, our need as a people to explore the unknown and, and as uncomfortable as it is to venture outside of the light into the dark and the possibility of what might lurk there, the possibility that something positive, you know, some sort of hope, some sort of sense that there is more than just stopping, just ceasing at the end of life. That is the comfort, I think. So you you venture through the discomfort to find the hope of comfort. You know, you might not find the comfort, but there's always the hope that it might be out there somewhere. That's fantastic. What a great way to end. Thanks so much for bringing on Don't Look Now. What a great thing to uh, discover comfort in. A pleasure. That's great. What's that behind you right now, George? A a figure in a red coat. No! Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.